Could your organization exist in the United States? Oh, given, given what your mission is. Oh, that's a that's a fascinating. I feel like we've already started the podcast. Um, <laughs> I mean, oh, well, we'll include this bit on there because it's a really interesting question. Um, I do have friends in the states, and I think the answer they often say would be yes, but would it actually get any support? You know, I could start up the website. I could, oh, sure you could. <laughs> yeah, you, know, would be... you, you could do everything like that, but you'd never, it would be so tricky, I think, because in, in the UK, you know, if you make the arguments about Norway especially, then they aren't actually that far away. So you can kind of make that argument. You can say, oh, actually, no, we are similar to them. We are actually quite close to them. You know, if you want to, you can get on a plane and easily go over to Norway and see what their justice system is like. Um, or speak to people who've been involved in the justice system in the UK. And I think it makes it a lot more real compared to if you're, say, in the United States and you're trying to say, you know, we should have this big reform and where are we basing it off of? Somewhere all the way over in Europe, which is, a, you know, in comparison to the United States, you know, Norway is absolutely tiny. I mean, it's, it's, you, you have to go down to the state level. Um, yeah. I think it'd be incredibly difficult to make it. Um, yeah. I kudos to anyone who does try and make that argument, but it's it incredibly difficult, I would say. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, we can get started. <laughs> but so first of all, thank you, David Rudolph, for, for coming on uh, the conversation. Um, and you were the defense lawyer for Michael Peterson, and you appeared in the, the Netflix series, the, the Staircase, you were portrayed in the HBO series. Uh, very recently of the, the same name. You even started your own law firm. So thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Um, so one of the things I wanted to start with was um, actually about uncertainty in legal cases. Um, because if there's anything I think that keeps the, the whole um, case with uh, Michael and Kathleen Peterson coming back, it's this idea that you, even watching the series, you never know what quite is going to happen next um you know whether it's the the blow poke whether it's you know afterwards was the the owl theory that came out you know this idea that um an owl attacked Kathleen outside the house and then she fell down the stairs indoors and any of those kind of things so how do you think that the justice system should deal with doubt and and also how do you think that you know why do you think it's important that we don't lock up innocent people simply because if we do then you know you can say I think one of the examples you gave was you could um lock up sort of a hundred guilty people um but you know if you lock up that one person then the the fundamental idea of justice can be lost yeah well uh a couple of things um first of all you know if you lock up an innocent person then the actual perpetrator remains free to commit other crimes so although it sometimes is sometimes is portrayed as a liberal versus conservative uh, dichotomy on the importance of avoiding wrongful convictions, the reality is that everybody should be aiming to avoid wrongful convictions, maybe for different reasons, uh, but uh, it's not good for your law and order crowd to convict an innocent person uh, and let the guilty person go free. And it's not good for the victims of crime uh, to have an innocent person convicted and have the guilty person go free. And it's certainly not 
in the interests of the defendant or his family or her family uh, to have that. So everybody should be on the same page about avoiding wrongful convictions. That's number one. Number two, in terms of the, the role of doubt, you know, I think actually um, Scotland has it right. You know, Scotland has three verdicts, uh, guilty, not guilty, and not proven. Uh, and I think that every country should have two verdicts, proven or not proven. I don't think any, any uh, uh, country ought to be limited to this binary uh, guilt or innocence or not guilty, guilty. Because when, you, when a jury says not guilty, there's sort of an implicit um, uh, uh, conclusion that the person is innocent. But that's not what the verdict is really saying. The verdict is saying not proven. You didn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, you know, we could have debates about whether beyond a reasonable doubt is the right standard. Um, I happen to think it is. Uh, you know, other people might think it should be, uh, you know, a greater weight of the evidence or something in between those two, um, you know, clear and convincing. Uh, but uh, once you settle on what the standard should be, uh, then it seems to me it should either be that standard has been proven for the jury or the standard has not been proven for the jury. I, would, I think that would make the system much more transparent to everybody, um, you know, because when a jury comes back and says, uh, uh, you know, not proven, it's pretty clear that what they're saying is you just came up short. We're not saying this person is innocent. We're just saying you didn't meet your standard of proof, your burden of proof. So that's why I think, you know, uh, doubt and uncertainty is, is really important in the criminal justice system to avoid letting actual perpetrators go free and convicting innocent people. So my next question actually was, was going to be about the, uh, the not proven um, sort of verdict that they have in Scotland. So what do you think though about them having, in their case, they have sort of guilty, not guilty and not proven all at the same time. So at the moment there is a, um, they're actually doing a consultation, the, the Scottish government, um, and it's interestingly seems to have been spurred in quite large part by uh, Alex Salmond. So he was the former first minister um, and it's a lot to do with, um, in their case, um, with sort of sexual assault cases where it'll end up being the, the, the verdict will be not proven rather than um, either guilty or not guilty. Um, so what do you think about their system of, you know, firstly of reviewing it, but also of having free whole verdicts all at once? I don't really understand the purpose of the three verdicts. Hmm. Um, I mean, I could understand it if you had a verdict that said innocent, <laughs> you know, where, where a jury was going to actually affirmatively decide mm. that someone was innocent. Although, you know, you ought not have to prove that uh, uh, to, to escape from, from the consequences of the criminal justice system. So I don't really understand uh, the rationale. I think what happened was uh, if, if my memory serves me correctly, because when I was over there, I, I was interested in this. Uh, I think what happened was they originally had the guilty, not guilty, and then the not proven was added at some point later on. Uh, 
Uh, and I'm not quite sure what the impetus was of that. And I, when I was over there in 2018, there was a, a fairly infamous case, a, a sexual assault, where the person was found uh, not proven. Uh, but then there was a civil uh, proceeding uh, mm -hmm. where the person was held responsible. And so there was an uproar, uh, you know, by the victim and, and the victim's supporters about, well, you know, why, why wasn't he found guilty uh, if, you know, he was found responsible on the civil side? Uh, and I think that's sort of what led to a, a re-examination. But for me, uh, that, was, that was faulty logic. I mean, there's a different burden of proof. Uh, so it makes perfect sense to me uh, that somebody could be found responsible by a greater weight of the evidence, which is the, the standard uh, for civil liability, but found not proven by beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't see any, I don't see any conflict between those two. Uh, and, and I think that was sort of the, the, the gravamen of the, of the complaint was that somehow those, those verdicts were inconsistent with each other. And I don't think that's true. So my hope is that they're not actually thinking about changing not proven. I would prefer them to change the entire thing to proven or not proven. I think that would make infinitely more sense. Uh, you know, basically that's the question. Has the prosecution proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt? Either they've proven it or they haven't proven it. Well, I think you've just come up with a good new policy proposal there. Uh, well, good. Why don't, why, don't you, why don't you push that? I was going to say, it's a very good one, actually. Um, so just to move on uh, in some ways to looking at the trial itself, um, one of the big things was um, cameras being allowed into the courtroom in the Michael Peterson case. And, and in some ways, the documentary, um, as we now know it, wouldn't really exist um, without the, the cameras having been in uh, the courtroom. Um, whilst in the UK, it's a very different situation. I mean, we, we actually have courtroom sketch artists specifically for the fact that you aren't always actually allowed in court, um, even when sort of verdicts are being read. So do you think that overall that move towards cameras being in courtrooms was a positive case, a sort of positive step, sorry, or, or was it actually something that risks creating that sort of media circus. I mean, we saw with the, the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial recently. I'm actually not particularly in favor of cameras in the courtroom. Um, now, let me just say this. If what you're gonna do is what court TV in the United States set out to do 20 years ago or 30 years ago, where they were gonna cover trials gavel to gavel, um, and, uh, you know, people could tune in anytime to watch as much of it as they wanted or as little of it as they wanted. I could see there being some benefit in terms of just educating the public about how the system works. Mm -hmm. So that I think would have some marginal usefulness in, in much the same way that I think the staircase educated the public in ways that no other documentary really has about how the system actually works in real life. So that has some value. Does it have any value to allow cameras in the courtroom so that on the evening news, you can play a, uh, you know, a two minute or a 90 second clip of a particularly dramatic moment? I don't think that does anything to educate the public uh, or, to, or to really 
give them any real insight into the case at all. It's just, it's a moment in time. It's like a, you know, a snapshot. Um, so, and I, and I do think uh, that having cameras in the courtroom uh, to the extent it leads to those kinds of snapshots, uh, you know, uh, on TV at night or uh, in social media uh, is a negative uh, because people think they're getting the actual taste of the, of what's going on, but they're not, you know, when, when it's, uh, when it's a reporter who's in the courtroom all day long and, and is listening to both sides and assuming that the reporter is conscientious and fair uh, and, can, and can summarize a full day's uh, testimony. But um, then, then there's some value to that. You, know, the, you get a, a much better feel, but not for the, you know, for the 90 second clip. I just don't think that serves any purpose. On the other hand, I will say that I don't, I don't think having a camera in the courtroom really affects any of the participants. It may affect the jury um, mm -hmm. because they know that other people are watching uh, and that may make them either more conscientious or more skeptical or something. Um, but I don't think it really affects the, the lawyers and I don't think it really affects the judge and I don't think it really affects the witnesses. I, I think the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial would have been a uh, farce without the cameras there. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, it, it just seemed to me to be uh, uh, everybody was sort of uh, taking a role there. I'm not talking about the lawyers. I'm talking about the witnesses and, and the parties. Um, everybody was playing a role. Uh, and maybe that was inevitable given the fact that they're all Hollywood uh, uh, actors. Uh, I didn't feel that about the lawyers particularly, um, but um, I, I think that would have been the same whether there were cameras there or not. So do you think in your, your own um, almost part, I would say, in, in, the, in the Netflix series um, on The Staircase, um, do you think that you sort of helped to change the image of defence lawyers as well? And was that sort of one of the, the positives that maybe came out of it? That was actually my goal. When I, when I agreed to do it, I had, you know, Michael had his own goals, which were different than mine. Hmm. But my goal was that I was sick and tired of how criminal defense lawyers were being portrayed in the popular media, you know, whether it was on TV, in shows like Law and Order, uh, whether it was uh, in movies, uh, you know, we were always portrayed as, uh, you know, sort of unethical, uh, trying to trick uh, the judge or the prosecutor or the, or the jury, uh, you know, not really caring about our clients, uh, you know, there was just a whole series of stereotypes that had grown up over the last 30 years, which I had not been subjected to when I was growing up, because when I was growing up, it was it was Perry Mason, uh, who was a good guy. You know, he was looking for the truth and he was clearing people of crimes that they didn't commit. Um, so uh, that was my goal was, OK, uh, let's show people what we really do both in preparing for trial and in the courtroom itself. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, open the kimono, so to speak, uh, and, and let 
let everybody see. Uh, and that's what we did. Uh, you know, there were no second takes. There were no, gee, can you do that again, David? Uh, there was none of that. It was just, they filmed what was going on. And I have had probably hundreds, uh, if not more, uh, maybe thousands of people texting me or leaving comments on my website, basically saying to the effect of whether Michael Peterson is guilty or innocent, some think he's guilty, some think he's innocent. Regardless of that, you made me understand a lot better what criminal defense lawyers do. I have a whole new appreciation of what your role is in the system. Um, and, and so I got lots and lots of positive feedback about the role of criminal defense lawyers. And I know from talking with other criminal defense lawyers in the United States that they have felt that as well, uh, that, that, this, that the staircase did improve uh, our standing, if you will, uh, with the general public. And so that's what I'm probably most proud of about the staircase uh, and, uh, and, and most grateful for. Norwegian prison system, of course, is, I would say, a world away from either the US or the UK prison systems at the moment. Um, why do you think there's such a resistance to moving towards that system? After all, you know, the US system seems to be more and more about punishment and deterrent. Norway's system is more and more about, um, you know, rehabilitation, you know, and ensuring that prisoners actually um, learn skills in prison, that they can, you know, fit into society afterwards reducing uh, reoffending rates. You know, wh why do you think it's such a difficult sell in the US and the UK right now? Well, I can't, I can't necessarily speak to the UK. Uh, in the US, I just think there's a sort of, uh, I don't know, Protestant uh, sort of ethic that, uh, you know, sort of an eye for an eye idea. And so there's a there's a certain uh, desire for revenge or retribution or punishment mm -hmm. um, that I think is somehow wrapped up in religion in some way. Um, uh, and I'm not quite sure how, uh, but it, it just says, you know, the whole concept of heaven and hell and, and you know, good and evil. Um, it, it just seems to me that, that there's a, that there's a uh, religious-based judgmentalism and and uh and desire to punish uh when somebody does something wrong as opposed to a desire to understand uh and uh to as you put it rehabilitate uh and leave people in a better position when they come out than they were when they went in uh, all of which is completely rational um mm -hmm. And it, it eliminates that whole notion of we need to get our pound of flesh from this person because that's really what it's about at the end of the day. It's we need to get our pound of flesh. This person did this. And so he needs or she needs to pay for doing that. Uh, and I get that to a certain extent. I mean, there has to be deterrence uh, and, and deterrence is fine. Uh, but, you know, when I was going to law school, we often talked about the fact that, you know, the, the goals of punishment could be deterrence, they could be uh, retribution, or they could be rehabilitation. 
And back in the day, you know, in the in in the uh, 70s, um, rehabilitation was something that people actually in the United States considered as a goal of of incarceration. That long ago died away, long long ago. Um, you know, as as crime increased, as the drug problems increased, as people got more and more scared about crime, um, uh, we became much more. Uh, revengeful, I guess, uh, would be the right word. So, you know, in my mind, um, it's, not a, it's not a rational uh, reaction. Uh, I think the, the reaction in Norway is, is much more rational, uh, much more uh, productive in terms of the overall health of the society. Uh, and I think you see that in, you know, the crime rates and the and, and, and the rates of recidivism. Um, so, you know, the proof of the pudding is, is in the eating, isn't it? So it kind of leads on to my next question, which is then if you were going to try and convince people in America of sort of a Norway style system, would there be a place to start? I was gonna say, where would you start to try and do it? Or do you think it's just almost too far gone now that it's, you know, it would be almost impossible to say, actually let's focus on rehabilitation or do you think it'd be such a tough argument that Torin, the united the, the the atmosphere in the united states right now is that we can't even agree that assault weapons mm. ought not be easily available uh to 18 to 21 year old to anyone really mm. i mean what's the purpose of an assault weapon other than to kill as many people as you can as quickly as you can. Um, so we can't agree on that. Uh, we're certainly not gonna even begin a conversation about the value of rehabilitation. You know, we, we, we ought to begin rehabilitation with rehabilitation of, of certain uh, members of, of Congress uh, uh, who need to be re rehabilitated about uh, their values. Mm -hmm. An interesting start. Um, so I will, uh, I will say my final question, and and again, it's it's sort of on a slightly different subject. But one of the things that you've said in the past is that you wanted to uh, encourage your at the time new law students to uh, represent poorer people, and and one of the, the debates in the UK has been around um, legal aid, which goes to people who can't afford to pay their own legal costs. Um, so really, I just want to ask why you think it's such an important part of the justice system to ensure that those people are represented and sort of have a fair trial um, in comparison to, you know, what would simply be not, not allowing them um, as good a representation or if any. Well, um, and I know that's a big issue right now, because as I, as I have read, I think uh, your barristers are on strike yeah. Uh, over over pay and, and working conditions, uh, which uh, is a pretty dramatic uh, uh, development, I think, and and it speaks to the very issue you're talking about right now. Um, the reality is that in order to have a fair trial, a really fair, I mean, if you were gonna if you were gonna not have prosecutors. You know, if you were going to have the victim be the prosecutor or the victim's family or some some person appointed by the victim, not a lawyer, but some lay person appointed by the victim to try the case for the 
for the prosecution, well, then maybe you could do the same thing on the defense side and it would be, you know, a fair fight, if you will. But you can't have the crown, you know, on one side of the courtroom and somebody with a, you know, sixth grade education, um, you know, completely untrained, unknowing of the rules of evidence or the rules of procedure, uh, be able to mount a fair defense. And, and the problem with that is if you can't mount a defense, you're inviting error. You know, you're inviting convictions that ought not occur. Uh, and so, and, and then the question becomes, what's the cost of that to a society? You know, in the United States now, uh, as you may know, I, I have basically devoted my career in the last 10 or 15 years to suing police officers and other uh, individuals, law enforcement individuals, who are responsible uh, for wrongful convictions uh, to secure monetary compensation because that's the best we can do for the victims of that. Uh, and you know, in a place like Chicago, where this was a rampant problem, uh, the city of Chicago has paid out hundreds of millions of dollars in damages to people who were wrongfully convicted. Imagine if they had instead devoted those resources to public defenders and not just what they're paying the public defenders, but to caseloads and managing caseloads and to providing the kinds of ancillary services like experts uh, to help them represent people. Uh, I'm not sure it wouldn't have been a cost savings uh, to have done that. So, um, you know, I think it's short-sighted uh, to, to not have public defenders. Uh, I think it's very short-sighted to not fund those people uh, properly, uh, not to pay them, uh, you know, what you're paying prosecutors, uh, and to not give them the resources and the time to do their job. You know, you don't want to have prosecutors who are so overworked that they can't uh, properly present their case, and you don't want to have defense lawyers who are so overworked that they can't properly defend their clients. Well, thank you so much for coming on the conversation. It's been fantastic to talk to you, David.